we're not the only ones who are remembering the sanctity of life today. It's remembered by many churches all across our nation, our area here. And the Lord has led us in the last few years to use this opportunity on this Sunday to put a stake in the ground about where we stand. And so I want you to know this morning we'll be stark and at times heavy, uh, but it will be good for you. It'll be good for us. You know, I've been asking myself this question in light of today, like, like how did we get here? I don't mean to the Sunday called Sanctity of Life. I'm wondering about our culture, our society. How did we get to this place where a culture of death is so prominent? How do we arrive at a place where the most basic biblical value is not just undermined and undervalued, but even destroyed, often without a thought? It's a fair question. Numerically speaking, here's where we are. In the last year in which stats were reported for the full year, it's 2019, and in our country, just under 900,000 babies were aborted. Only 3 to 4% of those were for fetal or maternal medical reasons. Cumulative speaking, since the Roe versus Wade opinion, and that's all it was, an opinion, over 60 million babies have been killed. Church, it's not an understatement to say that we are living in our own holocaust. But there's more than numbers to consider. As I've surveyed the landscape recently especially, there is this morally horrific love affair in our culture with death. And it's spreading. Here's a few examples. Elizabeth Spears wrote a opinion piece in the New York Times recently, which she declared, I quote, adoption is just as traumatic as abortion. She's essentially equating what is actually a life-saving measure, even with all of its hurdles and difficulties. And adoption is a beautiful thing. And she's equating that with a life-taking measure. I think in one sense, her point was to incite fear of adopting babies and to instead project some kind of sordid, morbid comfort with killing babies. Furthermore, many political leaders are now calling for laws that allow abortion at any stage, even up to the point of birth at nine months. In 2019, one Virginia lawmaker sponsored a bill. It was H. B2491 in Virginia. You can look it up. This bill would have provided for abortions even when the mom was already dilated and at the point of just seconds before the child takes their first visible breath. It, it, it seemed impossible that this would be presented, and so one reporter asked her, I think her name was Kay, uh, if this was her intent. And she replied, and I quote, my bill would allow that. I find it paradoxical that in our nation, while especially since the beginning of COVID, we've become clearly and obsessively consumed with our own safety at all costs for those who are visible. 
It seems like our nation refuses to help those who aren't as visible but just as viable, the unborn in the womb. It's like we've forgotten that they exist. For our president to actually say it's quote-unquote immoral to not get vaccinated, but then to take steps to make the murder of unborn babies more palatable and more accessible is at best moral hypocrisy. Just last month when the Supreme Court was hearing the case for Mississippi involving that state's law to not allow abortion after 15 weeks, many in the pro-death culture, they were just vocally adamant that their quote-unquote reproductive rights were being violated. Here's what's so oxymoronish about that. Nothing reproductive happens in abortion. (laughs) Furthermore, we've been hearing the two words constitutional right when it comes to abortion. Ironically, abortion is nowhere in the Constitution either. In fact, I would say to you, it speaks to the exact opposite. It informs us, at least constitutionally, of our inalienable right to life. And so, church, can we just agree that in so many ways, our culture is upside down on this issue? We are seeing Proverbs 8.36 playing out in front of our eyes in our own borders in which the wise writer inspired by the Holy Spirit said, those who hate me love death. And this is sadly the commentary of where many in our country are, even our own leaders at times, loving death. And so I've been asking myself, where did this begin? And I don't mean chronologically or historically. That's for another person to evaluate. I mean spiritually and theologically. After all, I'm not a politician. I'm not a historian. I'm not a, a, a civic expert. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher of God's word. I'm a shepherd of God's people. And my role under God's authority is to hold the Bible up against my life against your life, against our lives, against the church, against the culture, to hold the scriptures up and ask ourselves this question, are we living and speaking in light of scriptures, diagnosis, and declarations? And so I'm asking myself, in light of God's word, where did this whole river of destruction begin? What are the headwaters, not only of abortion, but of this culture of death that we are living in the middle of? Now, maybe you're wondering, Todd, what are headwaters? Why that word? Most of you probably know, but in case you don't, headwaters refer to the small streams that feed a a larger body of water. They may seem insignificant. They may not be as visible, but they're just as vitally important. They feed the river. They're, They're the small source of springs from which the river then gains its strength and its momentum, so to speak. In fact, if you go north Minnesota, you'll find the headwaters of the mighty Mississippi. And my belief today, more than ever, is that the headwaters of abortion and more broadly, the culture of death that so pervades our society are these two things, independence from God and idolatry against God. I'll show this to you from Romans chapter 1. So take your Bible and turn to Romans 1. And I think this text will plainly show that abortion, 
i.e. murder, many other sins, including sexual sins, they are the hellish fruit of two deeper issues. And to repeat, those issues are independence from God and idolatry against God. Now, let me just quite transparently say to you, I realize that many of you here will not hear anything new today. This is this annual opportunity to kind of put a stake in the ground on a very vitally important issue and to make sure you know where we stand and to help you stand there with us. I agree that most of you are probably there. So you may be wondering, Todd, why spend an entire Sunday just on this topic when the vast majority of our church, those who gather here today, like we're with you. We're, we stand with Romans 1. Here's why. I think it's very healthy for us to be under the word of God at all times and pray this th uh, for these three things. So that first of all, for those who are on board already with Romans 1, that you'll just have an increased strength in your spine, an increased level of confidence about standing there. I hope you'll sense an injection today from me and from God's word to never budge on this issue. Also pray that you'll sense a widening of your smile. I say a lot, let's have a strong spine and a big smile. Let's be winsome even in our strong stances. I'm praying that as you see God's incredible control, even in dark times, that somehow in an, in an, in an odd way, you'll be able to hold both the horrific nature of what's happening with this incredible joy that God is in control and we can rest in that. And I'm also praying that for those who are on the fence or maybe wondering, maybe curious, like, is this really where the Bible is on this? Is this where I should stand? that you will have an irresistible call to submit to the authority of God. So I'm praying three things today. Confidence, joy, and submission, that it will just blanket the auditorium. So will you follow along with me as I read the weighty text of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'll make a few comments along the way, then we'll dissect some further parts once we're done. Here's what verse 18 says. I'll begin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So a, a verse that just basically says to us, there is an ongoing judgment of God occurring against the actions of unrighteous and ungodly people who try to keep God's truth down. Notice it is an ongoing judgment. It's not the final judgment. There is one still to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the consummation of God's judgment, we'll call it, the ultimate judgment. But this verse clearly states there is one that's ongoing. I believe it's referring to what's been happening since Genesis, that God continues to mete out judgment to unrighteous and ungodly actions of people that suppress his truth. And so we are living in a time in which this has been occurring and does occur, it's the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who use that unrighteousness to suppress God's truth. Notice how verse 19 extrapolates this. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of the unrighteous and ungodly people. How is it plain to them? Because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? It says here his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Notice that things are plain, they're clearly perceived, and they're, they're, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation right now alone says to all people, there is a God. He's in charge. He has truth. 
righteousness. And so because unrighteous and ungodly people don't like that truth, they try to suppress it by their actions. That's why verse 20 says that this kind of creation by God leaves people without excuse. It does not say that creation is alone enough to save people, but it does say this clearly, creation alone is enough to condemn everyone. You know innately and inherently when you look around you, there is a God. Now, how do they go about then trying to suppress this obvious, plain, clearly perceived truth? Verse 21 says that although they knew God, and that doesn't mean they knew him in a relational salvific way, they just knew about him. They knew he existed. They knew what verses 18, 19, 20, and, and 21 are discussing, that yes, there is a God. So although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How did that occur? What did that look like? Well, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see what's happening here? Yeah, they're, they're not wanting to acknowledge God. Instead, they're wanting to replace God with themselves and with what God created. And so they begin to worship other things other than God. As a result, God does what verse 24 lays out for us through the end of this chapter. It says, therefore, God gave them up in their lust of, the, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 25 is just a summary of verses 18 through 23. This is what the unrighteous and ungodly people did. Uh, to suppress the truth. They exchanged God. They worshiped what he made instead of the one who made it. This was foolish. It was a dark activity. And the result was a promiscuity that God gave them up to. Do you see that in verse 24? He gave them up to, a, to, a, to the lust that's in their hearts, to impurity, dishonoring their bodies. So promiscuity is one aspect of this judgment upon the unrighteous and ungodly people who try to suppress God's truth. But it continues. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature or unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It moves from promiscuity to perversion. This is what God gives the unrighteous and ungodly people who suppress his truth, he gives them up to this. But it becomes even worse as this promiscuity and perversion just permeates every aspect of their life and it becomes a life just of regularly practicing evil. Look at verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They, speaking of the unrighteous people who try to suppress the truth of God, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full. Notice that he says they're filled and they're full. He's emphasizing the fact that this is the, the practice of their life. It's just permeated everything. 
They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is a weighty text, is it not, church? I mean, it, it, can, it will level you. It describes the existence and the situation, the condition, even from the garden forward, when sin entered and we begin to try to replace God with ourselves. I mean, even a, just a casual reading of these verses, I mean, they show us how we ended up here. We ended up here in 2022 because we didn't stay in Romans 1, which is, which is just acknowledging God's authority and humbling under that. No, we moved away from that, and now we see how we ended up here. In fact, let me just give you three words that might describe the digression of this text. Here's just three simple words. I think you'll see them in the text. I'll expand on them a bit. But what you see in this text is an independence from God, an idolatry against God, and then the resulting immorality that occurs. And by that, I mean all sorts of evil that they see, first of all, in their promiscuity, then in their perversion, and then in the permeation of that evil throughout their whole life. Now, this independence from God, this idolatry against God, I want to keep our nose in the book. I want to keep our eyes on the text. Notice how it surfaces in several places. If a pen, maybe mark these in your Bible. I want you to make sure that it's not my opinion. I'm not soapboxing today. I'm not trying to just, you know, mount some type of hobby horse. Here's what the text would say to us about independence from God and idolatry against God. First of all, this independence, look at verse 18. They try to suppress the truth. Verse 21, they did not honor God. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal one. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth. Verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature. Verse 28, they did not acknowledge God. These phrases point to this this exercise of independence from God. I want my rights away from you, God. I don't want to be under you. I want to be in place of you. And of course, the resulting manifestations of that, look how they're listed in this same text. In verse 24, there's two of them. Impurity, dishonoring their bodies. Two more in verse 26. Dishonorable passions, engaging unnatural, uh, exchanging natural relations. Look at verse 27. Committing shameless acts. In verse 29, this summary uh, title for all of this uh, list of evil, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. You see, this text essentially explains there's a switch that's happening among those who are ungodly and unrighteous trying to suppress God's truth. The switch is we want to take who God is and replace him with who we are. That's what the text is showing. It's this switch for taking the invisible attributes of God, the creator, and removing them, denying them, and trying to replace it with the visible, what I would call the responsibilities of the created ones. Our responsibility is to worship. Instead, we want to be worshiped or worship something we made. And this is the switch that's occurring. Now, regarding this switch, the text does indicate some specific things about this spiritual siege that's underway, this switch that's being attempted. Let me just briefly walk you through these again. We're going to stay right in the text. I want you to see how Romans 1 just leans into us. 
and how this text can hopefully either give us greater confidence, deeper joy, or change our minds and bring us to submission. I think, first of all, the text says that the unrighteous and ungodly folks who try to suppress the truth, they desire to change and to deny God's character. Notice that he says, first of all, that his attributes are clearly seen, they're plain, they're perceived. And so unrighteous and ungodly people want to suppress it by denying that, that God is those things, that he is who he says he is. But I'd remind you, God's character cannot be hidden. It is revealed in creation. It is clearly plain. And I would say to you, it's clearly most plain in the creation of human beings, God's pinnacle creation. You see, see human beings, we bear the image of God. No other aspect of creation bears the image of God. It's all beautiful. It's all good. Amen. But only one aspect of creation bears his image, and that is human beings. That's why it's so theologically wrong, morally violent and, and wicked to take the life of an image bearer of God. Abortion does that. That's why we stand for life, because we stand for image bearers of God. In fact, this is how you know there is a God, because his image has been stamped upon you. It's what we often refer to as natural law. Does it mean that we're born good? Does it mean that we have some kind of light within us to save ourselves? It simply means this, that there is within us this innate understanding that someone greater than me put me here. You look around at what you see like, well, I'm not the guy who made this. Someone else did. But then when you realize that he's God and you're not, wickedness and unrighteousness often tempts us to replace God with ourselves and deny his character, that he is divine, that he's immortal, so this is what this world system is up to. The unrighteous and ungodly people who try to suppress the truth, they do this by, first of all, trying to deny God's character. They do it, second, by trying to change God's design. You know, as the passage unfolds, you see that it moves from promiscuity to perversion, and even speaking of how things that go beyond the male-female relationship within God's order, it's called unnatural. But what we're hearing is that God's order is unnatural. In our culture, we're hearing that. And so the world system, those who try to suppress the truth, they want to invent their own order. But understand this, church, we don't invent God's order and pass it down. We simply observe the order God created. It can't be added to or deleted. It simply is. And what isn't under God's order is contrary to nature. Let me give you an example of how this is playing out currently. Our friends to the north of us in Canada, as of last Monday, it is now illegal in that country to speak against any type of sexual perversion. In other words, if you counsel someone or preach a sermon or instruct your church that God's design of the sexes and of gender and God's design for sexual intimacy is within marriage between a man and a woman, if you have any of that language that... Uh, prioritizes God's view as authoritative, as his, his design as ultimate, as the one, you can be arrested and fined, you can be imprisoned. It is against the law to speak in those terms. That started Monday. And this Sunday, today, in Canada, 
Uh, many pastors and churches are intentionally speaking on God's design in marriage and sexuality as a way to make sure that country and the government knows where their allegiance lies. It is with God, and I and we stand with them. We do not get to change God's design. Amen. Thank you. Amen. You may say, well, that's north of us. I'd remind you that even currently in West Lafayette, Indiana, this same bill was proposed. Now, what we know, it will not pass. It was worded in such a way that probably legally it will get shut down. But the audacity, just a few states away, to propose a bill that's very similar to what Canada has already passed as law. You and your small group, me as a pastor, you with your children as a parent could be arrested or fined or imprisoned just for speaking of God's design as the authoritative one. So I hope you're seeing Romans 1 and saying, my spine is strengthened, I'm not giving in. I'm not budging. God is in control and we're standing strong on his truth. We don't change God's design and we don't deny his character. Thirdly, we don't usurp or replace God's authority. You see this in the text as well. Verses 18, verse 21, verse 25. There's this exchange happening. They see God's truth is adjustable. The world does. But God's truth is not adjustable. It's eternal. Forever, O Lord, the psalmist said, your word is settled in heaven. God's authority is not just, uh, you know, temporal. It's universal. It applies to all people of all times and all places. This is why we must submit to God's authority. And I would just add that though this text lays out for us the appearance that people are switching God of themselves, that they're grabbing the authority and then God doesn't have it. It's only the appearance that that's happening because as you see mentioned three times, to those very people, the unrighteous and ungodly folks who try to suppress God's truth, deny his character, change his design, replace his authority, God gives them over to the very end of their sin. So even though it looks like they're replacing God, they're making this switch, guess what? They're really not. God is still in full control. And he's meeting out his judgment currently, and he will meet out his judgment ultimately when, the, when Christ returns. Just understand something. It's only the appearance that they're taking the reins from God. That's why you really can't take God's authority. You can only think you are. So this switch that's happening, this switch that's being um, sought after and pursued, I just remind you that if you think you can make the switch, and ultimately purge yourself, or purge God from the entire equation. Here's the inevitable option. The text says that God will give you up to the end result of your depravity. And the text says to us, the Bible says to us, the end result of our depravity, of our sin on display is death. In fact, verse 32, can I read it in your hearing once again? says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And the phrase deserve to die, it's not some, uh, you know, like someone sitting back, <laughs> we got them. It's just a phrase that, that tells us this, that this type of lifestyle naturally, justly, uh, correctly leads to death. You can't practice these things and not experience death. It's the just result. 
Romans 6.21 echoes this when he says, the end of those things is death. Verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. So Paul here is not saying there's someone in the corner, you know, laughing in some uh, sinister way saying, we got you back. This is how depravity ends, in death. And that's why I say to you, what you're seeing around you, not only specifically in the horrific tragedy of abortion, but in this culture of death that we're experiencing, it is what's downstream from the headwaters of independence from God and idolatry against God. It is at its core a spiritual theological issue, not a political one. And the immorality you're seeing increase on an exponential scale, it's the result of independence and idolatry on steroids right now. The devaluing of life is the result of our attempts to dethrone God. But church, God will not and cannot be dethroned. Now, he can be denied, decried, even defied, but he cannot be dethroned. Which is why I want to make sure you understand something. The moment that you try to dismiss God's authority, change his design, or deny his attributes, his character, that's the moment you actually invite God's judgment. And in this passage, the judgment is one of abandonment. God gives us up to our sin and its eventual consequence, death. You see, this text has an interesting digression. I showed you those three words, independence, idolatry, morality. Here's really three more phrases. It starts off as like my sex, my way, not listen to God. Then it turns into my God, my way. We're gonna make the God we wanna make. But the end result of that is my death, my way. This is what we're watching play out. And that's why I say that the broad culture of death that we're experiencing, it's the result of deeper issues. It's a consequence. It's a judgment. It's the downstream effects of independence from God and idolatry against God. I hope your heart right now is asking, well, Todd, what is our recourse this is heavy. It's almost spiritually, emotionally debilitating. This is stark. It's dark. What is our recourse? Submission to God. In a word, surrender. Bowing to King Jesus, taking a knee under the authority of the Almighty, the Creator, no switching of allegiance from God to self, no coup d'etats, no spiritual sieges. Simple submission and surrender. And to be most precise based on the text, it's simple submission and surrender to the gospel and Christ. Now, stay with me textually. I'm a big guy on context. I want you to see something. Romans 1, 16 and 17 say this. That the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And then what unfolds is Romans 18, 1, 18 through 32, which describes God's judgment on people who don't believe, but try to suppress his truth through unrighteousness. But there's a way out of that. 
Romans 1.16, it's the gospel, it's Christ, it's God's great truth that he sent Jesus to be our only savior. So there is salvation, not only from the coming judgment, there is salvation from the current judgment. It's in Christ and the gospel. That's the power of God to salvation, to rescue. As this text unfolds, Romans 3, about verse 21 to 26, describe God as just and the justifier because he sent Jesus to take our place. And so because one has taken our place uh, and, and taken our death and taken our sin, God is now just and can justify people. And then as Romans 8 concludes this first section, Paul says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So guess what, church? There is a recourse. It's submission and precisely to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this news about the one who died and rose again that we are to submit. And it's not just to a piece of information. It's a relationship that Jesus in historical time and space lived and died and was raised and was ascended back to the Father. And he alone provides salvation from the current judgment and the coming judgment. And that is why I pastorally exhort you this morning bow to the authority of God. Take a knee to King Jesus. This is how we escape God's eventual and final judgment. And I remind you, church, this is how we endure it in his present and current form. We surrender to Christ and his claims. We surrender to the gospel. We realize we're not God, he is, and only through Christ can we be reconciled back to God. And so in regards to the sanctity of life, in this text specifically, Romans 1, 18 through 32, I would say to you that in the fullest context, we will stand best for the sanctity of life by kneeling first to the giver of life. That's really the, the, the essential truth from these verses. This is what I call upon us to do today, to stand for the sanctity of life, but not with some hypocritical arm saying you and them, and, but to say, hey, I myself first have surrendered to the giver of life. God owns all authority. He sets the standard. He's made the design. His attributes are clearly seen. So I will bow to the creator, to God. I'll worship only him. And in that posture, then we stand best for the sanctity of life. So church, will you read this with me on this special Sunday, Sanctity of Life Sunday? And can we together agree that we stand for the sanctity of life best when we kneel to the giver of life first. And maybe you're wondering, Todd, why remind us again of the need for submission? It sounds like a little bit of a rehearsal from last week's message. Why urge us again this week to stay under God's authority in a position of surrender? Well, multiple reasons. First of all, it's counterintuitive strategy for victory. You know that, right? In God's economy, the counterintuitive strategy for victory is surrender. But I think another reason is this. We must be aware that the final voice of rebellion, which no one really wants to get to, you don't intend to be there, but that final voice of rebellion begins with the smallest whisper of refusal. It's thinking that you can negotiate with God Maybe barter with him on a few things. After all, these no's, these refusals, they're not that big of a deal. God didn't probably really mean what he said there. 
I'm sure that was just to the, that culture then. And you begin to kind of weasel your way around clear scripture. Small refusals always lead to final rebellion. That's why I, week after week, month after month, will urge you to the posture of submission to Almighty God, to surrendering your life to Jesus, to putting your yes on the table before you even know the question. Because that's the counterintuitive strategy to victory and enduring the current judgment and escaping the coming one. In fact, as I thought about this text and this truth, I was sadly reminded of a friend who sat in our home years ago. She clutched her Bible. She expressed her love for Jesus. She said, man, I want to follow the Lord. She seemed to be committed to being a disciple of Christ. But as her life increasingly encountered the costs of following Jesus, she began to slowly, almost invisibly, negotiate with the Lord. She dismissed what the Bible said through what I call interpretive gymnastics. She made the plain reading of Scripture cryptic. Her small no's weren't a big deal to her. And they eventually turned into large no's. Her little refusals became final rebellion. And today, she is one of the most outspoken advocates for any type of sexual, and I'll use the word here as they do, rights and freedom. The Bible would call it perversion, wickedness, unrighteousness, immorality. And sadly, she's one of the largest advocates for whatever accompanies that type of sexual freedom or perversion, even when it means murdering a baby in the womb. How did that occur? Because we didn't pay attention to the small whispers of refusal and they turned into the final voice of rebellion. See, that's why I'm reminding you and me again this week and while we'll continue to proclaim the absolute authority of God over your life, over my life, over this church, the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Christ, the exclusive power of the Holy Spirit. Here's why, because the final voice of rebellion always begins with the smallest whisper of refusal. So I plead with all of us, even while we look out the window at, at the horrific tragedy occurring in our culture and we're sorrowful, for, for the way it is displayed, specifically in abortion and in other ways of death, we also then want to turn back and look in the mirror and ask ourselves this question, am I surrendered to God? Is my posture one of yes, Lord? And so I urge all of us this morning to adopt and maintain a singular posture of submission to God in order to ensure that we don't ever so slowly drift into the headwaters of independence from God and idolatry against God because that eventually leads to deathly immorality. May God have mercy on us today.
Will you pray with me? Stark, heavy, mind-bending, numbing. I'm sure you could think of other words to describe Romans 1, 18 through 32. My heart's cry and prayer this morning is that no one will leave with a fist in God's face. That not only on this issue will you submit to the Lord, but regarding everything in your life, you will bring it under the universal authority of your creator. And you'll ask him to crush every idol, purge every ounce of pride, and to give you an irresistible pull and an insatiable thirst for submission and surrender and humility. That you would take a knee to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for that's the only thing that changes the hearts of people. That you would place your feet on that good news. So church, just for a few moments, as I close in prayer, I want to ask you to do something today a little different. If you can physically, could you take a knee with me? Could you get your chair right there? Just adjust your seating. And if you can physically, will you go to a knee and let's bow in submission to our authoritative, almighty creator. Across this room, will you begin to pray for God to loosen your hands from the reins of your life, to purge pride, to remove selfishness, to crush your idols. Just begin to pray, church. You're welcome to pray above a whisper. You're welcome to pray as with someone next to you, but can we just say this simply, Lord, I need you. I don't want to replace you. I don't want to deny your character, change your design, replace your authority. Lord, I want to submit to you. I need you. Oh, church, can we together stand in humility under the authority of God? So Lord, would you, in this symbolic way, see our posture now? We visibly take a knee to you as the rightful creator and king and we acknowledge you, God, and we give thanks to you, God. We do not want our unrighteousness, our, our wickedness to be anything that would hold down your truth. We pray that it would be continually, clearly seen plainly obvious and that we would be the first to take a knee under it. And as your image bears, God, I pray that we would stay committed to your divine order, your created design, 
And that, Lord, in that submission to you and your gospel, to the truth of Jesus, that it would spare us not only from coming judgment, but it would give us the the joy of enduring the current judgment. We pray, God, in whatever way we know how, that you would have mercy on us. And that the gospel would go out even stronger than ever to those who currently are trying to hold down your truth through their wickedness and unrighteousness. God, would you convict them through the news of Jesus Christ and draw them to the Savior. We non-negotiably surrender to you. In the mighty name of the captain of our salvation, the church with passion and joy prays together. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.